Show number 30 of I Read Comics. Kids, it's an interview show, and the interview was with Steve McIsaac. And if you've been listening to the show, you know who he is. He's a gay porn guy. It's a gay porn show. Yay! So if you're not into that, um, you know what? If you're not into that, you should listen to it anyway because there's not a lot of gay porn talk. It's mostly about Steve as an artist and what he likes and what he doesn't like and how he works and all sorts of stuff. So it's a really good interview. I remember when I interviewed Brad Rader, also a gay porn guy, lots of people wrote and said, hey, that was really cool. I didn't think I would like it because I don't like gay porn, but he was interesting. Same for Steve McIsaac. So stick around and listen because Steve was a, a great interview. He said a lot of really interesting and funny stuff. And I very much want to promote his wonderful art, which right now is in a comic called Shirtlifters that's available. And I'll put the link up on my blog. And don't forget that he was the artist on Sticky, three issues of wonderful gay porn that came out from Fantagraphics which is now collected in a hardcover. So I will put up the link for that as well. So you should buy him. Before we go to the interview, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the rant about shut the fuck up to fanboys, because I want to be very, very clear. I saw some comments in other places about it, and I, and I fear that there has been a little bit of confusion around what I said, which I am probably responsible for because I ranted, and when I rant with that sort of righteous anger, I might not have been as clear as I could have been. So let me clarify. When I say shut the fuck up to fanboys, I do mean shut the fuck up. But I don't mean that men and women shouldn't be talking about these issues. Not at all. What I'm saying you should shut the fuck up about is anybody, any man who assumes that he knows what a woman's point of view is on any topic, including comics. Of course, men have valid opinions. Of course, they have valuable experiences and interesting information to share. Men and women should be talking about this. But when it comes to a woman's point of view, and I don't want to generalize and say that I represent all women because I certainly don't, but if anybody's going to generalize about maybe what women like or don't like, it's not guys because you don't know. It's one area in which your opinion is irrelevant, really. And I know it's hard to hear that, but it really is. Um, love to hear what you think, but I don't need to take it seriously, really. I'm talking about experiences and point of view. Information, informed opinions, things that you've seen, your opinion about it. Yes, let's talk about all those things. But what I see too often and what I was really complaining about in, in the podcast that I referred to was a group of guys deciding amongst themselves what women like and don't like because they know that somehow. They intuit that. I would never assume that I know what a man likes or doesn't like 
just because, you know, I have psychic powers or something because I'm not a man. I never was. And I, I don't have that point of view. So I can't decide that stuff. And the reverse should be true. Now in our society, it is true that the people who make decisions for women in the big things are straight old white guys. And that's, that sucks. And we should try to change that as often as possible. Um, but that is really what I was complaining about. So that is my point on this. I do have more to say about this, but I think I'm going to save it for the next show. I got some really interesting email that I especially wanted to read. Um, and the next show will be coming up soon because it's an interview with the, the fine, fine women behind When Fangirls Attack, which is part of this feature that I'm starting interviews with women who blog about comics. And that's a great thing. But without further ado, I'd love to turn it over to me and Steve McIsaac in our, our rather long chat, which I hope you will enjoy. The show after that will be an interview show, and at some point there will be a review show in here because I do have a lot of good stuff to talk about. Listeners, the interview you've all been waiting for with Steve McIsaac, one of my most favorite artists and writers. And I'm so glad that he's able to join me on Skype because Skype is wonderful. Um, so, hi, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, hello, and thanks for having me. Um, so, I've been reading your work for quite a long time now, and I think the very first thing of yours that I ever saw was in the True Porn Collection, which is what, like, like three years ago or something? I f- yeah, it came out in 2003, yeah. so yeah, yeah. and I drew it, drew it at the end of 2002, so yeah, quite a while ago. Um, and that's a great collection. It's um, got a lot of really interesting stories about sex and porn and smut and things like that, and some of them are funny stories and some of them are um, more slice-of-life kind of autobiographical things, and I really thought your piece was one of the best things that was in there because it not only combined really good art, but the storytelling in it was incredibly honest and and real life um and everybody that i showed it to was like wow this is really great and so from that i sought out all this other stuff that you had done and i was so happy when sticky finally started coming out um so i wanted to ask you uh, i know that you have come to this i don't want to say late in life but you haven't been doing this full time for a really long time right um so if you wanted to talk a little bit about how you got into doing comics um, yeah, well, I'm still not doing it full-time. I'm, I'm very much a dilettante. And, <laughs> but um, I did come to it late in life, that's true. Um, I think I started drawing comics again when I was 29 or 30. Um, and that's not really from lack of trying. Uh, I mean, I've been obsessed with them pretty much since I could walk. And I tried doing them when I was younger, but... Um, I didn't really have the patience to finish things, if that makes any sense. I would, I would get like two or three pages into things, and then I'd get frustrated with how bad they were, and I'd just destroy it, or I'd throw it away. Um, so I never really, I never really finished things, in it. and at the time I was into things with a much more of a, an immediate reward mm-hmm. to them. I did music and bands and theater and things that were more performance-oriented in, in high school and university. 
and my first real creative endeavors were, 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 were writing plays. I was a playwright for a while in, in, in university and college, and I was really drawn to theater. And so I just kind of stopped drawing completely. Um, and I, aside from a couple of art classes in, in university, and I did some cartoons for my student paper, etc., I basically just let that lapse because I had to choose what I could focus on, and, mm-hmm. and I didn't think I was good enough to really do it, to go anywhere with it, so I just stopped, which is kind of a common scenario. I think a lot of people go through the same thing, and in there as well, I stopped reading comics, too. Um, they became difficult to find. I moved around a lot, mm-hmm. and I... I got out of the habit of buying things monthly, and then once you're out of the habit, I, I just kept meaning to go down and, and catch up on the things I liked, and I never got around to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty broke at the time as well, so there was, a, there was a financial element, and I just sort of fell out of the scene completely for you know three or four years. Um, and then in my late 20s, I, I started buying them again, and it corresponded with... Um, I was so, sort of training myself to do a lot of layout and design work at my job at the time and through that I, I started doing digital illustration work and I started loading Illustrator as an attempt to um, to try I, I needed to, to learn it for work anyway and I thought this would be kind of interesting to do comics this way and I started playing around with it and I became completely obsessed again um, and that's continued up till, up till now um, and in there, I went back to school. I went back to art school when I was 30. I was there for a few years, um, ostensibly to study design, but I fell out of that and became in, uh, a fine art student instead. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I knew that some of your work looked like it had been done with a computer. How much do you draw by hand, and how much do you just do on the computer? I, these days, I do absolutely nothing by hand. Wow. It is, it is untouched by air. Um, it's completely digital. I did a lot of work on paper in university. Um, I learned, I learned a lot about myself as an artist. Actually, and I realized why I was really bad at comics when I was when I was um, a university student. I draw really big. I draw large. I use my entire body when I do um, when I do works on paper. I'm very gestural. I'm very loose and fluid. None of this is stuff that shows up in my work. I realize. I, I was going to say that because it doesn't look like that at all. I mean, no. it, it looks very precise to me, especially like your backgrounds and your cityscapes right. and everything. Yeah. I draw. I draw very differently on paper, and I have to draw big. And um, I always found comics frustrating because these, there are these tiny little squares in which you have to do, be really precise. Um, somehow, when I work digitally, that goes away. My, my aversion to working on these teeny tiny things goes away, maybe because I blow it up on the screen and I sort of I work really large as well, probably too large because I magnify things. Um, so it's a little bit more like working on paper for me than, than drawing on. Um, on a, a 10 by 15 piece of paper would be. Um, so I'm able to overcome some of the some of the problems that I always had with uh, with um, with traditional illustration uh, vis-a-vis comics. I'm fine when I'm drawing big, but it's the small micro movements that I always had problems with, and comics are sort of all about that. Yeah, that's so interesting. Do you always work in black and white on the computer? Um, no, not at all. I mean, in fact, when I started out, I was working mostly with color because I could, and my 
first experiments, my first attempt at sticky way back, like you know, six or seven years ago before I was working with Dale, um, was with Duotone, was working with a limited color palette. Um, because one of the things I realized about myself is that um, my early attempts at drawing were, were there was obsessive cross-hatching everywhere, and it just it ruined everything. I'd have a perfectly good drawing, and then I'd try and add some value, and it would just it would become completely blacked out by all these ugly lines. Um, so part of the reason for moving to two-tone work was to add value and, and tonality to it without having, but and still keeping like a clean, a fairly clean line. Mm -hmm. um, so the black and white work I've done has tended to be by necessity rather than by choice, although with Shirtlifter I did make a conscious effort to really emphasize black and try not to do as much gray mm -hmm. stuff, although th there's a bit of it in there still, I couldn't completely ab abandon that approach to value. Um, I do tend to work better in color or with limited color, I think, um, even though most of the stuff I've, I've uh, published has been black and white. Mm -hmm. it's. I don't know if my style lends itself to that so so well. Well, I think it does. <laughs> I mean, I, I, primar okay. I primarily think of you as a black and white artist, merely right. because so much of it has been published. And, right. you know, looking at the back and the front of Shirtlifter, I was like, ooh, color, and thinking yeah. how unusual it is to see your work with color. Um, well, Sticky's color. Sticky's color, pretty much. I mean, limited, but Limited, so. yeah, but, but still, I mean... The, the feel to me is always black and white rather than when I think of color in comic books, you know, I, I'm thinking more of traditionally brightly colored comic books. And oh, right. even when yeah. your color is there, it's it's subtle and it's muted and the, right. the black is what dominates it. Well, I hate traditionally colored comic books. <laughs> well, I mean, not traditionally in the sense of like 50s and 60s where they're using a fairly flat and limited color palette. Um, but the stuff with those like these glossy highlights and everything, mm -hmm. I really... I really can't stand that approach to color. And it's definitely not with my work. Um, I've tried doing stuff like that, and it just it just doesn't work. I can't do it, and I don't really even like it, so um, <laughs> I, it's not a place I'd go. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you were talking about how you used to read comics when you were younger. What kind yeah. of stuff were you reading then? When I was really, really young? Yeah. Um, pretty much the same stuff that everybody does. I mean, I... I um, I was pretty much a little superhero kid from the time I was about eight years old. Uh -huh. um, you know, I think a fairly typical story, you get sick and someone brings you <laughs> some comic books to read and then you become obsessed with them. I didn't like Archie so much because they didn't really seem to behave like real kids. They seemed, <laughs> really, they seemed a little geeky to me. That's, um, I think that's an understatement, not behaving like yeah. real kids, yeah. But but it wasn't it wasn't the style of them so much. I kind of liked the way they were drawn, but the writing always left me dopey. Um, I was pretty much always a Peanuts kid, though. I, I got these little books when I was about six years old, and I think I learned how to read with those books. And um, I became really, really, really obsessed with Peanuts when I was like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. It was a real, uh, a real phase. I even was like drawing a lot like Charles Schultz at the time copying his style obsessively. What did you like about them so much? I don't know. Um, that they were depressing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. There was something about the way that it's 
it summarized the world in four panels, and uh-huh. they had these really distinct, strong personalities, and the, this interesting, quirky approach to the world. And it's not that they were funny; they were, it's never really a funny strip, mm-hmm. um, especially not in the '80s, when it's, which is about when I was when I was growing up, and it was starting to get a bit lame then. But just the way it was structured to look like jokes, but it wasn't a joke. And I kind of of thought that that was what the point was. So I would make these Peanuts knockoffs where they weren't funny. They were just sort of like strange because that's what I thought comics were supposed to be. (laughs) You weren't really supposed to have a joke. It was just supposed to be this this sort of whimsical non sequitur. Um, So, yeah, I I I did a lot of Peanuts knockoff stuff for a long time. I I think... um, I think you're right. I mean, I, I loved Peanuts, too, when I was younger. And uh, I think at its best, in probably the, the 70s, every Peanuts strip was like a little haiku. You know, like you said, it wasn't supposed to be funny, but yeah. it captured some point in this very spare language with this completely surreal image that went along with it. Because, of course, they don't look like real kids. They don't act like yeah. kids. So it's been... A, I, I sold all my Peanuts paperbacks when I was in art school because I didn't really... I was sick of having them around, and I didn't like the format that they were uh-huh. in. And I thought, well, someone will eventually do a, a collection of all this stuff. And that's so the Fanographics reprints yeah. have been really, really a real godsend because I'm I'm getting a lot of stuff that I didn't, I'd never read before, and it's going through all the PQs right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm like really, really digging it. Oh, they were great. There were some. I love the fact that he used to do um, continuing storylines in a lot of them, like when Snoopy's right. doghouse burned down, and they were trying to save his right, Picasso. Right, right. And <laughs> Yeah, Those are great. although that's a, that's true. Yeah, like this, the seventies is when when he started to emphasize Snoopy more. It, it started to get a little irritating for me. Um, but the uh, yeah, I liked his extended continuity sequence um, sequences, especially like in the early seventies, uh, like where Charlie Brown gets a big rash on his head that's the shape of a baseball and goes in this this quest to get rid of it, and it's, it's, it was really, um, really, uh, really, really cool. Um, so Peanuts was a big influence. Um, I started reading Marvel stuff when I was like 13 to maybe 15, and I kind of got rid of, I got out of superhero comics a bit when I was 14, and I discovered um, a lot of the independent stuff that was happening. Mm-hmm. I think I started reading Cerebus at the time and American Flag and a lot of the ground-level 80s stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was 15, I discovered Love and Rockets. Ah, and, yay! Yeah, and that, that's when the world changed, pretty much. Yeah, I was, um, was going to ask you about that because it's one of my favorite comics of all time, I, and I can't say right. enough about it. And, and I see um, some of that, I think, in your work a little bit, um, in... Um, the, the Hopi and Maggie stories especially, just sometimes the way um, people are drawn, you, you draw a little bit similar to that, and especially the use of black, because he is so good at the way he uses black in those right. panels. Right, and in terms of in terms of um, black and white composition, there's, there's Jaime Hernandez and there's Alex Toth, and mm-hmm. those are, those, those two people can, they can make a, a panel out of nothing, just like, just a well-placed line, it, it it approaches Japanese calligraphy and its in, in its simplicity and, and, and the arrangement of shape. Um, Jaime Hernandez as a cartoonist is, is pretty much up there in the, in the pantheon. I try not. I mean, 
I like the fact that you say that you can see an influence there. I try not to go too far down that road because there's not a lot there's not a lot you can do by being a second rate someone else. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, but but he's definitely been an influence for sure. Um, not only not only in terms of drawing, but as a writer as well. I don't think people give him his due as a writer enough in terms of what he's able to do with um, the aggregation of detail over time, uh -huh. um, how, how things change and how people vanish for long periods of times and then they come back into the strip. He's got an amazing facility with, with developing things in this very organic way over yeah, time. Yeah. Are you reading it right now, what, what's going on right now? I'm just catching up. I was in Japan for a long time, and I just sort of caught up then with like the Penny Century series, mm -hmm. and I wasn't getting comics regularly in Japan at all, so um, I just bought the Ghost of Hopper's hardcover mm -hmm. and Dicks and Dee's, and those two things have sort of caught me up. Um, so I haven't read the last... I haven't been reading the series as a... As a serial, no. Um, mostly just because of inconsistent availability, sure. and I refused to sort of jump in without knowing what was going on. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I will say that when you finally get up to the current issues that are coming out right now, Mm -hmm. It's exactly what you were talking about. He's reintroduced some characters who were away for a long time, and the way <clears throat> those stories are woven in with Maggie and Hopi's stories are, are just amazing. I mean, it's for me, it's like I want the next issue as soon as I'm finished reading the issue that I've just gotten. It's right. never enough. Like, I have to find out what happens, and I know it's going to be another couple of months before it comes out. It drives me insane. Right. Um, so... Yeah, that and Dave Sim was pretty a pretty big influence as well. Um, I really really liked Cerebus, especially when I was a teenager. It um, I thought it was really funny, and it was one of the first my first forays into non superhero stuff mm -hmm. at all. Um, so it just opened up this world of possibility. Even though I mean, it's like a talking aardvark, so there's like definite elements of fantasy in it. It's not exactly realism. Um, but he was really funny, and he had this amazing approach to layout and, and, and lettering mm -hmm. and various other things. So I'm quite fond of that book, even though um, it kind of fell apart in the last five years or so. Mm -hmm. Some people would put that date much earlier than me, <laughs> but I was enjoying it pretty much up to like about 250 or and then not really at all. Yeah. Um, are you reading anything now, um, like mainstream or, or independent stuff? Like a really Regu current stuff. Regularly? Oh, um, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't really pick up individual comic books. Oh, sorry, as like monthly comic books at all. I haven't read mainstream superhero stuff in ages, and when I do, I usually buy a collection. Um, like, I've got the new X-Men stuff that Grant Morrison did. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to read some Invisibles, um, and that's not exactly current, I, I realize. Uh, I just bought Ganges by Kevin Huizenga. Is that how you say his name? I'm not sure. I know who you mean. Um, right. It's a big, big, it's gorgeously produced, um, about 12 by 9, um, oversized, oversized 32-page comic book, absolutely gorgeous. Um, he does some really formalist, formally interesting stuff. 
Um, Chris Ware, I love. Oh, Chris Ware. Chris Ware. Uh, I think his approach to things is pretty good. I'm generally buying books these days. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly a habit I got into in Japan because those were more easily accessible to me. Um, so I'm not so up on current things really.、Um, and even though I live in Los, I don't really live in Los Angeles. I live in Long Beach,、mm-hmm. so I don't always get to the comic book、right. store. Um, all that often, um, so I'm not exactly、um, on the cutting edge of what's, <laughs> what's coming out. Well, I don't think it's it's not important to be on the cutting edge, but it's more about what you like and and what pleases you. Right.、Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs>、um, so tell me how Sticky came about. So you mentioned before that you had been kind of working on that in your head, but it didn't really happen until you got together with Dale. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been a pornographer since youth, I guess. <laughs>、um, I mean, some of my earliest memories of drawing, well, as a teenager, were, were were drawing, you know, naked pictures of men, not very well, but you know, that's always sort of been there, and I've always kind of been fascinated with the idea.、Um, I thought Howard Chaykin's Black Kiss was a fascinating sort of combination of erotica and sort of this. Crime drama,、mm-hmm. um, not always successful, but just the idea of doing something adult with hardcore sexuality in it,、um, I thought was kind of kind of an interesting idea.、Um, Gilbert Hernandez's Birdland、mm-hmm. would be another example of that.、Um, Black Kiss, not so much, but I thought Birdland was pretty sex positive.、Um, it was also it, funny, really funny, and funny, and it didn't take itself too seriously.、Mm-hmm. Um, And so that appealed to me. And when my first, I, I first tried to do something sticky like on my own, my first draft, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was taking itself way too seriously. It was more like this depressing soap opera with hardcore sex in it,、um, and it it wasn't really working.、Um, more neurotica than erotica. <laughs> and so. I thought, you know, this this requires a lighter touch, and and you've seen my solo work; it tends to sort of go to the dark side a fair、mm-hmm. amount.、Um, and I thought, well, this is not something you really want to do in in, in erotica. So、um, I I dragged in、uh, my friend Dale because I I liked his writing, and I thought he had, he had a, a lighter touch, and he was really good with structure and had clever ideas. And I thought, well, you know, this this could really work. I also really wanted to focus on learning how to draw, because,、mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think the the true porn piece you talked about earlier was like the second thing I've, second thing I had published and the second extended.、Um, it was the longest solo thing I'd done to that point, and I find it a little awkward now, but it, it was like a so much of a step up from where I had been before that.、Um, And I really wanted to practice drawing and learn how to draw well. And I figured, well, you know, drawing naked men's a pretty good anatomy lesson.、Um, you know, why not? You know, what's why not? I'm interested in the material. I think there's probably a market for it. Some people might be interested in buying something. And most of the porn comics that we both saw around were pretty 
dehumanizing is maybe like a strong word, but they, they t- sort of emphasize the more brutal aspects of sexuality. I, I think dehumanizing is putting it lightly. I mean, right, okay. I, I've, I've said this before, and although I, I love some of the people at Fantagraphics dearly, most of that Eros stuff is just horrible. Like, you can't even look right. at it. It's so bad. I'm not even referring necessarily to, to straight porn, actually. That's a whole different conversation. But... Um, even even gay porn. I mean, stuff like the Han or or yeah. um, Ichan or or various other people who are the children of Tom of Finland. Tom of Finland, not so much, but they kind of took a lot of the letter the leather play aspects of things and emphasized kind of like this pseudo rape fantasy. Yeah, it's always violent. So much right. violence. Which is fine, and that's like legitimate. But we just saw sort of an opportunity to. Um, play in a different sandbox mm-hmm. so to speak and so that's what we did yeah. um, we wanted, and that's some of the re- that's the reason behind some of the choices that we made artistically you know about um, you know there's always a condom in it mm-hmm. um, there's there's always uh, some degree of interaction between the guys who are, who are um, who are doing it we, we made narrative decisions that emphasize character and body language just to sort of make them real people, little touches. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think it worked because it, it, it sort of turned out, it turned into a book that was, um, it's sort of very much has its own voice, which maybe surprised me. I think it came through a lot more than I thought it would. Yeah, I, um, I, I'd agree with that. And I think what you were just saying is really interesting. The difference between Tom of Finland and some of the folks who have kind of followed in his footsteps is that there was a lot of humor in his work. Um, very, yes. You know, he's, yeah. he was never taking things too seriously, and the characters always looked like they were having fun, that right. they were attracted to each other, and sex was great, and everything was cool, and that was always so positive. And, and I have not seen nearly as much of that in the gay porn comics that I've looked at, and I, I love that about um, the stuff that's in Sticky, is that it really is positive and fun and caring right. and... Even when it's a pickup, it's still like that. It, it's not that right. it's within a relationship, but but it's fun. It's positive. Right. Tom and Finland, yeah, they they were always had a smile on their face, and the characters were always militantly versatile, um, sort of similar to Sticky. Um, whether or not that's realistic or not is, is is a separate question. But just the idea of you know being a top or being a bottom doesn't indicate mm-hmm. something about your personality or or indicate something about your masculinity or your right, passivity right. or anything. It's just, it's a choice, it's a preference. I like it, I like it both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, so that was something that we, we, we took from Tom of Finland and the silence thing, obviously, is sort of a throwback to those comics mm-hmm. as well. It, it works really well. I mean, you barely notice it, really. Um, and I think I probably got through the whole first issue before I actually noticed that nobody was talking. And then it was right. like, oh, there's no word balloons. <laughs> right. Well, that was also like, I mean, there was a few reasons for that. One was just the hotness factor. You know, mm-hmm. so many people watch gay porn with the sound turned off because the dialogue's so monumentally <laughs> stupid. Um, but the other thing was, um, you know, wanting it to be available internationally and not having mm-hmm. that having to deal with translation issues, especially with, um, when you're dealing with fucking, you're dealing with slang, mm-hmm. you know, you're dealing, and that stuff can be really hard to translate. Um, the second thing, sorry, the, the other thing was, um, just actually making myself improve as an artist, you know, there was, mm, I c- we couldn't shortcut, 
Mm-hmm. I had to. I had to make sure that my details were according to Dale's script and that um, that everything worked because there's no words to sort of back things up. Right. It was all showing and absolutely no telling. <laughs> right. So. Um, so that was uh, sort of like a creative challenge to me. Mm-hmm. So it actually made me grow as an artist a fair amount, having to do that. Um, so it was generally, it was like a very, very rewarding experience. I think uh, we're, we're quite proud of the book, especially in its new hardcover edition. Yeah, yeah. All the printing finally came out right, and it looks really, really good. Yeah. That's wonderful that it's been collected. Um, now, do you know how well it did for them, for Fantagraphics? Like... Uh, Eros, the sticky yeah. individuals? Yeah. Um, yeah, I got a royalty statement last Christmas. It didn't, it didn't do horribly, but it certainly didn't do well. I mean, or, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about the comics industry. It did do horribly, probably by any, any standards. I think, it, I think they sold about a third of the print run um, on each one. And I think they're doing a reorder package um, that's available next month of the individual issues. They resolicited mm-hmm. them as like a, a triple pack or something. Oh, that's great. Ho- yeah. yeah, at a reduced price. Hopefully some of those got um, moved as well. I mean, I, I, I'd like to see them get rid of their, their, their back stock. I don't, you know, they took a real chance on us, and I don't want them holding the bag and... I certainly know they didn't make any money on this. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, well, it was it was an experiment for them, too. It, right. it just puzzles me because I remember very clearly last year at Comic-Con when I was there, and I think the third sticky had just come out, and it was flying off the shelf. I mean, it looked like everybody who picked it up was buying it. And, right. and, and maybe it's just a matter of not enough people knowing that Sticky exists or that it's available. Um, well, n- not any fault of Fantagraphics, yeah. not that they haven't promoted no. it. It's just... It's unusual, and it's not what you would expect to find, especially not in Eros, because they've never done gay stuff before. Well, honestly, I think it's the gay thing, you know, more than... I mean, I think it affects it affects how Diamond handles it. It affects how comic shops order it. I mean, it's it's just... It's, it's a gay book, and it's not like... It's a gay porn book, and it's not like... Um, it's not like... The industry is really that friendly. I mean, it's better than it used to be, and I don't think there's, like, rampant homophobia or anything. I'm not accusing anyone of that. But it's just sort of like, well, why would I want that in my store, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, to quote to quote one of the retailers who I, I sort of um, was trying to get to carry a shirt lifter, well, you know, I don't think people would be interested, you know. The gays are really only interested in Wonder Woman, and, you know, the heterosexuals... Aren't going to want to read it. Oh, see, uh, that is so wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's kind of that's kind of the attitude, and whether whether it's right or it's wrong, these people are the gatekeepers mm-hmm. of, of the shelves. Yeah. So, um, and to some extent, he might be right. I mean, who knows? It, 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 but it's certainly. I mean, I certainly realize that as a gay cartoonist working with gay themes, I'm limiting myself in terms mm-hmm. of the potential audience. At the same time, I don't make my living from doing this, so I get the luxury of saying, well, fuck it, I'm just going to do what I want, mm-hmm. and if you don't like it, don't order it. Yeah. You know? He's perfectly within his rights. Yeah. I, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't really bother me, I understand. I mean, you know, I don't really read, I don't really read skanky DC 
boot comics <laughs> where they're, you know, it's basically bondage poses uh-huh. um, disguised as a superhero comic yeah. book, you know? So, you know, it's, I, I exercise my moral right to not do things. I'm sure other people are more than happy to do the same. Yeah. Well, I, I was interested to see that in the Eros catalog, they were marketing this, um, especially towards women. Like, for gay men and the women who love them, which I thought was really, really interesting. And frankly, if every woman that I know who likes gay porn, that's a lot of women, (laughs) knew about Sticky and bought Sticky, it would have sold out. And I just think it's a matter of not knowing and people who who like this kind of stuff. And that's a lot of women just not being able to find it or knowing about it. Yeah, sure. But, okay, think think about the situation. You own a comic shop (laughs) and you... You have a certain. Imp- do you really? Do you really want the information that all your female customers are really hot for gay porn? <laughs> is that is that is that information that you really want impinging on your on your worldview? Uh, this is true. I know. You know. I talk about the gay porn comics I love on this show a lot because I love them. They're great, and I want people to know about them. And I always get email from guys who are like, "Oh, just don't talk about that stuff." And it's like, right. well. Okay, it's my show. Like, I'll talk about what I want. Yeah. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen. Well, it's interesting. There's such a double standard. I mean, guys get off in dyke porn all the time. Of course. So, um, it's it's kind of stands to reason. I mean, it stands to reason that that women might like gay porn for the same reason. Sure. You know, there's no there's if you like guys, then two or two is. <laughs> Exactly. That's what I say um, when people ask me. I like men, lots of them. Bring them on. But even, even I, I mean, I knew, I knew sex positive lesbians, for example, who really like gay porn as well. And one of the reasons is because it, it, it doesn't have the same kind of oppressive stigma yep. that heterosexual porn does. Sure. And it also doesn't have the kind of um, let's walk into the sunset and worship Gaia mm-hmm. thing that some lesbian porn has because it's, you know, it's a little too touchy-feely, yeah, too, yeah. too la-la-la. Um, so gay porn is sort of a happy medium in the sense of it's people getting it on and it's it's free of the oppressive mm-hmm. gays stuff that um, that happens with, with a lot of um, with a lot of uh, heterosexual yeah. authored porn. No, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's it's so refreshing to to have porn that doesn't have the power dynamic in it where you're constantly, as right. a woman, being put on the defensive because you recognize yourself in the female character. And then suddenly, what do you know? You're into sex. I mean, that it's like a really, it's a really hot trigger yeah. for, I mean, take oppression out of the equation and everyone's fucking like rabbits. Definitely. Um, you know, it's really interesting. I've, I've been a big fan of Slash for a long time, fan fiction stuff about um, characters who we make gay in our minds because we want them to right. be. And I just recently found um, a whole bunch of archives that have Slash fan fiction about comic book characters. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it is really, really interesting to see what the writers, primarily women, are are doing with characters from comic books, like superhero comic books, taking them and right. pairing them and doing the whole angsty, slashy thing. And it, it amuses me greatly that they're doing this. Yeah, I can't get into that so much, but I mean, I can appreciate why it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of a gay porn equivalent, or maybe it's not even done by gay guys, but where they take like sort of porn things and then they paint them in Photoshop with like the flash on oh, I've seen those, those are great yeah. those are so weird those are so, so strange although 
I've also seen some amateur porn comics that people have done sort of a similar version where, you know, it's the get justice leave or something and they're all having these orgies. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I admit to doing that when I was 14 or 15, and, but it kind of isn't that it doesn't really interest me that much, yeah. but it's kind of wild that people do it. Yeah, well, it's it's always good to um, to pervert the stereotypes or to play yeah, with true. what's established, and I think that's why a lot of people like fan fiction is because it's taking something established and turning it on its head or doing right. what you want with it, and just saying I'm gonna break. I don't have any rules. Your rules do not apply to me, and and that's right. fun. Right, it's cool. So let's talk about Shirtlifter now. Oh, okay. I have it right here next to me. Um, so this is something that you did yourself. You didn't have yes. a, a co-author or a, um, anybody else on no. it. Um, no, it's all me. And this is number one, which means there's going to be more, right? Uh, supposedly, yes. <laughs> if I can afford to lose more money, but anyway, yes. Um, so this, the the plot of this is um, a relationship story that's set in Japan with two mm-hmm. Americans in their American group that's there. Um, right. And I am assuming that a lot of what you're putting into the story was what you saw when you were living there. Is that is that right? Is that fair? Um. Yeah. Uh, that that would be an accurate assumption. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's a collection of observations. It's not autobiography, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not biography either. It's it's definitely fiction. But it's fiction based on on personal experience, um, my personal experiences, um, and sort of extrapolating, you know, what if, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I knew, I knew some people like um, Derek and Michael, the, the couple in the book, mm-hmm. you know, they're not based on anyone specifically, but more like imagining, you know, what would this situation be like with these particular people in it. Um, but, you know, I knew, a, I knew a fair amount of people who, you know, they were over there because their boyfriend had been transferred and they were sort of along for the ride. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not an uncommon phenomenon. And a lot of those people are underemployed and they're not doing the job that they were doing in North America. They couldn't, they couldn't get a transfer over here. Mm-hmm. So they're bored and desperate housewives, desperate house husbands. <laughs> And, um, I mean, I, I took some Japanese classes when I was in uh, college, and I, I knew some people ah, from Japan who came over. So, so, Nihongo no Hanashimas, but only a little bit. Um, ah. <laughs> but I have heard from other people that it can be very, very difficult to be an American or, or a European in Japan because there's not only the language barrier, which can be extremely hard, but there's also just the fact that you look different from everybody else. Right. And, um, like in, in, um, countries where people are not standard issue white people, um, you can either try to learn as much as you can, but a lot of Americans especially just stick with their little American English-speaking enclave right. and never go outside of it. Yeah, those people who think it's difficult to live in Japan as a foreigner are whiners. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's phenomenally easy to live in Japan as a foreigner. It's, it, it's, it's so... I mean... When I went over there, I had no idea what to expect, and I thought it would be horrible. And, you know, an orientation of one or two days where some friends showed me how the ticket machines worked, Mm -hmm. and, 
you know, different things, and I was fine. And the only new word I knew when I went over was sayonara, which, <laughs> which isn't even used right. very often. You know, you're not supposed to use it. Um, so I, I was able to cope. It's, it's, it is what you, you get out of Tokyo, what you put into it. And if you, and if you go over expecting it to be Los Angeles, no, it's not Los Angeles. It's a foreign culture with different foreign practices, and, and you have to be able to adapt to those things. And if you're unwilling or unable to, then it's difficult. But I think that says more about you than it says about the culture. That being said, yeah, there's difficulties. It is difficult not knowing the language, and Japanese, Japanese English is notoriously um, bad compared to other Asian countries um, and definitely other European countries. So if the expectation is that everybody speaks English um, as a tourist, no. They're just now getting around to you know, making sure that you know, trains are in English, mm-hmm. etc. Um, that being said, in most major centers, there's you know, English tour guides and people are more than willing to help you with the limited English that they have. So it's, it's not so hard to get around or to find things um, if, you stay in the, if you stay in the right places. Um, but yeah, it's a bit xenophobic at times, mm-hmm. um, but it's also really open in other ways. Um, so it just, it just depends. It just depends on what you are trying to get out of it. Yeah. It's, I, I like the little slice of life stuff in here. And right now I'm looking at the page. That's a full page of, um, conversation at a party. And it, it's just, it's a, I love this because all the word balloons that are just kind of floating above this crowd of people at a bar. And that's kind of the way it is. Like if you are in a place and you hear these conversations, but you're not sure who the words are attached to, they could be anybody who's having this. And people talk about the same sorts of things. They're talking about food and they're talking about money and they're talking about how to get from one place to another. And um, it's great. I love this little quote. So the, they're there at this party for a play that they're going to see, and somebody says, "What does Hedda Gabler even mean anyway? What language is that?" <laughs> just thought that was so funny. Right. Well, thanks. Yeah, just so. I mean, I'm, I'm. I like eavesdropping on people. Um, it's one of the things that was difficult for me in Japan because my Japanese isn't so good. Um, not being able to do that. And when I came back to North America for the first time after about a year and a half there, and I'm walking down the street and I could hear everything, it was almost overwhelming <laughs> to overwhelming comprehension. That it, I had a hard time screening out um, what other people were saying. I was like always listening for it. <laughs> so um, I think those scenes, I think there's a couple in the book like that. I think they were kind of a reaction to that mm-hmm. experience of sort of being overwhelmed by a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's great. It really adds to the um, the feeling of being there at, at the place. Well, thank you. Um, so I, I also wanted to mention um, that the guys that you tend to draw are really hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Um, you know, they're they're they're. I don't want to say they're good looking because they're not stereotypically model good looking. I mean, they don't look like Calvin Klein models. Um, right. But they're generally pretty built, which is really nice to see. Right. Um, well, I, yeah. I don't do pouty lips very well. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder, um, in, in future issues when you do this, um, 
how do I say this in, in like the way to express what I mean? I know say it directly. No, no, no. I, I know that sometimes in porn comics, there's a reaction against the stereotype that all the guys have to be big and buff, and all the women, right. if it's if it's straight, have to be you know have like uh-huh. giant inflatable tits or whatever. Right. Um, and most of your guys, not all of your guys, tend to be of a similar body type. And I'm wondering if you're going to experiment with other looks that are somewhat different from what you have in here, and and in some of sticky as well. Yes. Uh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to experiment and have more than just one body type. The, the, one of the reasons for Shirtlifter, because of the situation, because of cert, the certain, certain things I had Derek do, he had to be of a certain type mm-hmm. that he could get what he wanted right. when he wanted it. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the dynamic of the story. Um, part of it was probably a little caution in the sense of, I knew I had people who liked my work because I draw this porn comic and I'm doing this thing that's completely different. So you know, maybe part of it was a bit of a safeguard. I'll throw, I gotta throw in a buff guy just to sort of make people pick the book up. Mm-hmm. Part of that was probably in there, but mostly it was just, it was, it's part of the character. He, this was, this was his way of acting out, and he had to, he had to be able to pick up whatever he wanted, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a choice, not just an attempted titillation. Um, the other, I mean, the next series of things I'm working on is actually kind of autobiographical, so it's kind of you're, you're stuck with me. Um, <laughs> but the third cycle I'm doing. Um, the there's a cycle of short stories, and there's going to be a variety of different people in there, very various ethnicities, definitely different body types. Um, partly just to, to mix things up, and also because you know I want I want to try different things. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get stuck doing the same thing over and over again. Um, I, I was going to say that one of the stories that of, of yours that was not in um, Sticky or, or in any of these was. Um, the one that's called Fucking Desperate. Oh, yeah. And, and one of the things I really like about that is that you paired two guys in that story who are very different looking. So right. the main character is much more, I would say, like a, an, an average guy. You know, he's mm-hmm. not really good looking and he's not really built. Um, and the guy that he, he meets on the Internet is much bigger than him and not really handsome, you know. Like, he's kind of good looking. Maybe he's a little bit overweight, but, you know, he's got a cute butt and all that. And putting them together, I thought, was just so interesting because they were so different looking and so different seeming, but they get together anyway. Well, that sort of reflects, uh, that kind of was an attempt to reflect what Lux really liked. You know, sometimes, sometimes like goes to like, you know, you see... You know, the skinny guys only with the skinny guys, or the buff guys only with the buff guys. And sometimes opposites attract, or people who are not, you know, people don't always want exactly who they are yeah. in their partner. Yeah. Um, the, the other reason I really like that story is because it's a story, it, it's a very real story where, you know, you're trying to, to meet somebody and you do that however you do that, whether it's going out to a bar or online and, you know, you hook up with them. And the whole time that this is happening, you're going, this person isn't right for me, this isn't going to work, and then you have right. great sex, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's it, I'm in love with them. <laughs> and that's so yeah. real. And, and, I mean, it's done not in a in an epiphany kind of way, but just in a this-is-what-it-feels-like way. 
The, the scary thing about that story is I hadn't, I, when I wrote it, I'd never even done any online dating. I was still like sort of in the death throes of my old relationship. Um, but it was sort of based on what other people were telling me about it. But since it was published, like I did a lot of it, and it's like, oh God, <laughs> I, I got this one right. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a, um, it was, it was an interesting little experiment. Um, that's going to get reprinted in, I think, the third issue. It's going to be part of a series of internet stories, kind of. Ah, cool. It sounds more, it, it, it's more exciting than it sounds. <laughs> but, um, well, I'm glad, it's like be- a- I'm glad it's being reprinted because it's a wonderful story and everybody should read it. Well, thanks. So, let's see, you've got another issue of Shirtlifter coming out when? Uh, good question. Um, <laughs> whenever it's done, I'm kind of, I mean, I plan the next two. The whole idea about the book was to sort of reprint some of the things that it did in anthologies in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, and to sort of combine it with some new material. I was going to do that in the first one, but I just decided to, I just, the, the story I was working on took over. It grew up, grew bigger and bigger, and I just, you know, just, through the whole issue over to it. Um, two and three, I've, I've sort of sketched both of them out, but the second one's about half done and the third not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of combining newer work and reprints of material. Um, and I think the second one's going to be more autobiographical in focus. Um, so waiting for the bus will be in there, plus from, from true porn, plus a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the other things I haven't finished yet, so um, I'm working on that one right now. I I don't know when. I mean, I I don't honestly the, the way the market is. I think I might be better off saving things up and doing like a big book mm-hmm. once every year or year and a half mm-hmm. rather than do individual things because comic books are sort of dead. Um, I'm having a hard time getting uh, Shirtlifter distributed. So, but if it had a nice DN number and a spine and everything, mm-hmm. it would, it would, a lot more avenues get um, opened up by that. Yeah, and a longer so, shelf life, too. And a longer shelf life. Um, even though I like the comic book format, and it's a good spur to actually making me meet deadlines and do things. Um, it's it may not be the best way to put out work for me. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm so the second shirtlifter I think will probably be sixty four pages wow. minimum with, with a spine and um, maybe two color. I'm not sure, but definitely maybe pushing a bit in that direction. Mm-hmm. So that's an expensive proposition. So I have to save up my coins to make sure I can I can afford to print it. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I, I w- we were talking before about stuff that you you might have been reading. Are you reading any other gay porn comics right now? Not that there's that many out there. <laughs> um, I picked up um, Hard to Swallow at um, at Ape uh-huh. because I was sharing I was sharing a table with Justin Hall, and uh, that's pretty funny, yeah. fun and funny, um, very sort of fantastical kind of approach to porn mm-hmm. and. They asked me to contribute something to a future issue, so I, I, I may. Though I have to sort of dust off my supernatural <laughs> kind of things and figure out something a little fantastical. Yeah. 
Um, I, I like that because, as you said, it was fun. Like the the Godzilla King Kong story yeah. is really funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I've been looking at Logan's stuff. He's a French guy. Um, he draws really well. I think Patrick Fillion's class comics just published some stuff in English by him, but I don't actually have it in English. I only have it in French, so I'm sort of have to puzzle through it. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend Sean Splatter just put out, or is putting out, the second issue of his comic Demonic Sex, um, which is very fantastical, hardcore, Satan's gay porn sex. It's, it's kind of sounds a little strange, but in, it's really well drawn. So it really um, is about demonic sex then? Literally. <laughs> literally about demonic sex. Um, I think they're having a release party at Meltdown um, next week in June, beginning of June sometime. Um, it might actually be on 6606. <laughs> um, that would make sense if it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But um, not tons. I'd like to pick up um, the Adventures in Leatherland that my publisher, Glinder, Bruno Glinder, just put out. It looks kind of good. He's got this sort of very classical, clean, pseudo-Tama Finland style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, Rob, Clark, Rob Clark does really interesting drawings, but I don't think he's actually done a comic book yet. But his drawings are very and tongue-in-cheek. Those are some of the erotic things that I kind of like. Uh, Are you going to Comic-Con this year? Uh, I should be. I think I'm... uh, I think I'm... Should be sharing a table with Brad Rader. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah. Right. I I haven't picked up his new book yet, but um, I like his work as well. He draws really well. Yeah. Brad has been on the show being interviewed just like this. Oh, really? Yes. And okay. we talked about what he's been doing. And uh, he he is a man with a vision. He is a man with a vision. <laughs> um, but I have to figure out the paperwork for that. And it's not as user-friendly as you may think. Um, <laughs> even though he's got the table and he, I want to sh- I'm just supposed to be occupying the other half. Mm-hmm. I don't know what hoops I'm supposed to go through. And nobody's answering the phone. So, um, <laughs> typical stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to Comic-Con. I will be there. I will have shirt lifters in tow and some sticky hardcovers for sale. Oh, cool. Um, oh, and the cards, those beautiful cards that you had at Ape, which oh, I, right. I bought several of. Those are wonderful. Oh, yeah, yeah, my cards. Um, yeah, they'll be there as well, uh, I think. Yeah, they should be. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm tabling. I'm allowed to show them. Yeah, I'll, I'll have some of those with me as well. Uh, and what else... Um, yeah, so I'm working on the second issue. I'm just doing some freelance illustration things here and there in my day job. And um, just sort of slow. I work slow, and then I go in um, I go in bunches where I just do a feverish amount of work, and then I burn out, and I have to take a vacation <laughs> from comics for you know a month or so, and then I start again. Oh, well, that sounds healthy. That sounds like a healthy way to do it. Yeah. Cool. Well... Thank you so much, Steve, for taking the time to talk with me. Um, this has been really interesting, and I'm so glad to learn about all the things that you've done and your work. And it, it's really fun to talk about things like peanuts on a show like this. Peanuts and gay porn. Right. Who could imagine? Peanuts and gay porn. <laughs> or, you know, as I did when I was 14, gay porn drawn in a peanut style. <laughs> See, I think you could make a lot of money on that. You should go back to that idea. Yeah. <laughs> 
You're you're a big stud, Charlie Brown. <laughs> I think actually that was done. There was a gag peanuts book. Um, I, I didn't actually see a copy, but I've heard about it. I think um, it was done by um, certain autobiographical cartoonists in Toronto. Uh huh. On the sly, called "You're Short, Fat, and Ugly, Charlie Brown," <laughs> and it's pretty scatological take on the Peanuts crew. Kind of like um, Meet the. You ever seen Meet the Feebles? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like Meet the Feebles, but with Peanuts. Oh, that's characters. great. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I haven't, that's legendary. I haven't actually seen it. <laughs> no, no, no. We wouldn't want to get ourselves in any legal trouble about that. No, we wouldn't. <laughs> wow. No, I'm being sincere. <laughs> anyway. Cool. All right. Thank you so much again. Um, it, uh, I will put up all the information for your website and where people can get these. Um, so hopefully um, new people will be discovering what you do. And uh, I would love to have you back on sometime. Maybe um, after the next shirt lifter comes out or something, we can chat again. Great. All right. Anytime. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Steve. credits at the end of the show. The music that I played this time around was something different from the composing diva Ginger Mayerson called Street of Crocodiles, which I like very much. So I thought I'd throw something new in for you guys. You could hear how wonderful her stuff is. All of it downloadable from her site at gingermayerson.com. Also have to mention my sponsors, the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, where you will find wonderful reviews. And of course, Comic Relief, located in Berkeley, California, the only comic book store that matters. Thanks, and I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.